Uh, I serve currently as the dean of the College of Church Leadership at North Central University. I did not originally come here as a professor or, or start off here. I started off from Los Angeles. I was a pastor for about 15 years uh, in the L.A. area. Uh, my wife and I moved out from L.A. to Minnesota to come to North Central. My son was born here, so he's absolutely a Minnesotan. But when he, you know, he loves the cold, he loves the snow, he doesn't want to put his jacket on. I mean, he's a Minnesotan. My wife and I came from L.A., right? Uh, the first winter we had was incredibly mild, and it was the worst winter we had in 15 years because L.A. doesn't have winters. When people ask me, why would you move to Minnesota from Los Angeles? I'd always say it's because of the winter. Uh, we missed having winters in L.A., and so we wanted to be here. But as a pastor in Los Angeles, uh, I went through a number of crises uh, with my church. I was a pastor on 9-11. I was a pastor of a church during a recession. I was a pastor of a community that was going through a massive demographic shift where people who were from the church from years back turned around and said, this church doesn't look like it used to. I have pastored Christian communities through crises in the late 20th century, but I have not seen the church respond to crisis the way it's respond in the last few years. How many of you remember that, that 2020 felt like we had a crisis every month? You know, it was like, it's July, it's Killer Bee Month. You know, it felt like every month there was something going on that was going to be a major crisis in our country. And what I feel like has happened for me from my perspective at first as a pastor, now as someone who's educating pastors, is I see that the church's crisis is not the crisis that's going on in the country. The church's crisis is how we respond to the crises that are going on in the country. And the church has struggled with this response in a way that I have never seen before in my years. Uh, I will say that anytime you have a crisis, anytime, you're always going to have a moment of conflict. And the reason you do is because people have different solutions to the crisis. You know, my, my funny analogy is I'm, I'm driving with my wife. We're lost. My solution to this minor crisis is let's keep going on the same road, and eventually we'll see something we recognize. My wife's solution to the crisis is let's pull over and ask someone for directions. We have the same crisis. We have two different solutions. And how you know sometimes that leads to conflict. Now think of a nationwide crisis. And you have different parties who think they have the solution to the crisis. One person wants to move in this direction. One person wants to move in that direction. So you go from crisis to conflict. Then you go from conflict to confusion because everyone else isn't sure who to listen to. Have you ever listened to two politicians debating something and you felt like they were both right? Like, man, that guy sounded right. Well, that person sounded right too. Or you listen to two people debating something and you think to yourself, I'm not voting for either one of them. You have crisis, conflict, confusion. And here's what eventually happens. We can become so confused as a community, we start looking for easy moments of clarity, what I like to call cheap clarity. We come up with these litmus test questions of how people are going to respond to something to let me know where they are, to let me know whether I'm safe with them or not. So how do you feel about vaccines? How do you feel about masks? How do you feel about CRT? How do you feel about... And I could just go through a litany of questions we've come up with just in the last two years. And it's trying to find some sort of cheap clarity because we're trying to work our way through confusion because of the crisis that we're all sharing. And the church has not done a great job with this. I said this earlier in our two o'clock session yesterday, I've known Christians who've walked into a church, looked at whether or not they were wearing masks, and depending on that, they either stayed at the church or they walked out of the church, never once asking, but does the church have a cross? We're asking the wrong questions for what the community actually is. We're looking for cheap clarity in a confusing time, 
And here's the interesting thing. The Bible was written in the same kind of environment. Much of the Bible was written to a community that was in crisis, that had conflict, and they were confused. In fact, the entire set of the Gospels are written at a time when the Jewish world has been going through a generational crisis that's been lasting for more than one generation, and the crisis is this. How do we maintain our Jewishness under Gentile oppression? The Jews are not a free people. They don't have control of their own destiny. They are under Rome. They are trying to maintain what it means to be the people of God when they live in a greater culture that's pressuring them to let go of who they are. Does that sound familiar? And the community has a conflict over what's the best way through the crisis. There's one group that says what makes us Jewish is the temple. The temple is where God's presence is. The temple is where we sacrifice to God. If we just protect the temple, we protect ourselves. That group was known as the Sadducees. There's a group that says what really makes us Jewish is the law. If we just maintain the law, in fact, there was a group that said if everyone would just follow the law and be who God wants us to be, then God's going to return and set us free himself. That group was known as the Pharisees. And for the Pharisees, when you find Jews who aren't following the law, you're part of the reason why Yahweh hasn't returned. You have one group who says, oh, I think God wants us to do it ourselves. He's given us the tools. We know how to fight. We can fight the oppression ourselves. We don't need to wait for Yahweh to return. That group was known as the Zealots. Then you have another group that says, look, Rome has given us a king already. Rome is already supporting us its own way. Why can't we just get behind what Rome is doing? Our king is Herod. That group was known as the Herodians. Different Jewish groups trying to answer the same crisis. How do we maintain our identity under oppression? And they're coming up with different answers. And here's what's interesting. When you come to the conflict with Jesus in the Gospels, much of the conflict revolves around this no one can figure out whose side Jesus is on. Jesus is a man who teaches constantly in the temple. Aha, that makes him a Sadducee. No, 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 but wait a minute. He teaches on the law. He has disciples. He acts like a rabbi. Well, clearly that makes him a Pharisee. No, 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 wait a minute. He also talks about revolution and the coming of a new kingdom. Well, that clearly makes him a zealot. No, 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 wait a minute. He also likes to eat and dine with sinners. Well, that clearly makes him a Herodian. Well, why do we look at his disciples? Okay, well, one of his disciples is a tax collector. Aha, I knew he was a Herodian. No, 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 but one of his disciples is called Simon the Zealot. Well, now if he's accepting zealots, that sounds like he's a zealot. Well, no, no, some of his disciples actually are friends with the chief priest. Well, that's a Sadducee. Well, no, no, some of his disciples have come from the Pharisees. Oh, come on, whose side is Jesus on? There's sides here. He needs to pick one and stick with it. And much of the conflict in the Gospels revolves around this People think they have Jesus pegged, they know whose side he's on, then he does something that confounds their expectations. And if you think he's a Pharisee, and then he does something that seems very unpharisaical, that's going to offend you if you're a Pharisee. If you think he's a Sadducee, and he says, tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it, that's going to really offend you as a Sadducee. When we come to our text today, and it's going to be Luke chapter 10, we're going to start reading here at verse 27. And Luke 10, 27 the whole context of this story, or verse 25, Luke 10, 25, the whole context of the story is simply this. It's Jesus being asked, whose side are you on? And the way he answers the question is really telling us whose side we should be on. So I want to read today, beginning at Luke 10, beginning at verse number 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, 
and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he, the man of the teacher of the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the whole context of this story is a man who stands up to test Jesus, to challenge Jesus. And he asked him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And right away, we might read that as a salvation question, but I want you to think of it as a Jewish question. Eternal life is the life of God. What must I as a Jewish person do to truly please God? Some say temple, some say law, some say violent revolution. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think you should do? Now, by the way, this is something that's true for a lot of rabbis. Rabbis are known for always answering questions by asking questions. In fact, the story is once told of a man who came to a rabbi, and he said to him, why do rabbis always answer questions by asking questions? To which the rabbi responded, what's wrong with the question? So the man asked Jesus a question. Jesus turns it back on him. How do you answer? And the man says, well, and he's quoting war for us, Deuteronomy 6, 5. The Bible says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, love God with all your being. And Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as if they were you. Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. If you do those things, if you love God with your whole being and you love other people as if they were you, you will live. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and they didn't know you were arguing? You know, one of the worst feelings in the world is to be in an argument with someone and halfway through the argument, you suddenly realize you're wrong. Like you see their point. It's a horrible feeling. And I always joke, you can either do one of two things. You can adult up and admit, you know what? I get it now. I see what you were saying. I was wrong. Or you could suddenly shift the argument to being about something where you are right and say, well, this is what we were arguing about all along, right? I don't know if any married couples have ever learned that trick. Now, here's the thing. The other problem is when you're trying to argue with someone and they keep agreeing with you. And you're like, look, we're in a fight. Don't agree with me on this. I need you to fight back. The lawyer is trying to challenge Jesus. He's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to show by his answer whose side Jesus is on. Jesus says to the lawyer, you've answered correctly, and the lawyer knows Jesus isn't on his side. So it says in the story, wanting to justify himself. Another way to think of it is this way, wanting to justify his challenge. The lawyer said back to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now understand, and this is as academic as I'm going to get this entire sermon, that when Leviticus 19 tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, in the Hebrew Bible, it mentions two groups in that chapter. It mentions your countrymen who live in your land, but it also mentions the foreigners who live in your land. So when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, who's the neighbor in Leviticus 19? 
Well, the only two groups mentioned are your own countrymen, but also the foreigners who live in your land. In other words, if they live in your land, if there's someone you can reach out and touch, guess what? They're your neighbor. But when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, a generation before Jesus, this is the Bible a lot of people read, they changed the word foreigner to the word convert. So now it doesn't read, love your countrymen and the foreigner. It reads, love your countrymen and love the foreigner who's converted to Judaism. That's who your neighbor is. So the man asked Jesus the question. It says, love your neighbor as if they were you, but who counts as my neighbor? And in asking Jesus the question, who counts as my neighbor? What the man is also asking is this, who doesn't count as my neighbor? And asking Jesus, who do I have to love? The man's also asking the question, who do I not have to love? And the answer that Jesus gives is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, when he gives us this story, it's a real world scenario. I don't want you to think of it as like a fairy tale. He's telling us about something that's real in that culture because there was a road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a winding road. It was a road in which there were places where you could only walk two by two. You couldn't have a huge caravan. And it was a wonderful road for people to get mugged because it was easy to hide on that road and pick people off. In fact, people on this road would typically travel in as large a group as they could just for protection. So when Jesus says there was a certain man going down on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, everyone knows what road he's talking about. I could even imagine someone in the crowd thinking to themselves, yep, my cousin got into a coma from that road. I know exactly what road you're talking about. And the man by himself was beat up by robbers. They took everything from him, including his clothes. In the ancient world, all clothes are handmade. Sometimes the most valuable thing you have are the clothes that you're wearing. They took everything from this man. They left him naked on the side of the road, half dead. Now, again, this is a road that is a dangerous road. It's not a road that's well-traveled except by groups of people. So when you're hearing the story for the first time and you're Jewish and you live in this area, you immediately identify with the injured man. And this is what I want you to think throughout the story of the Good Samaritan. You're identifying with the injured man. That's who you are in the story. You are alone, you are naked, you are bleeding, you are dying, and it's a road that's not well-traveled. And people could hear this and their first thought is, oh no, what's gonna happen? And Jesus says, and a priest came by. Oh, good, praise God, there's a priest. We're gonna be fine. And the priest saw the injured man and he quickly crossed over to the other side and went on his way. Oh no, this would have been this one guy's chance for help. And Jesus says, and then a Levite came by. Oh, good, finally someone else showed up. This is a man who's in charge of the worship of Israel. They're gonna help. And the Levite saw the injured man and he quickly crossed over to the other side and went on his way. Now, Jesus is answering a question, who counts as my neighbor? Jesus himself is gonna ask a question. The question that we sometimes ask is the question no one's asking in the story and it's, why didn't the priest and the Levite stop to help? And some people come up with their own answers. One possible answer is that in the uh, uh, Bible, if you touch a corpse, it makes you ritually unclean, and a priest and a Levite, if they were coming to the temple, could not touch a corpse, otherwise they couldn't do their job. And so some have wondered, did they think the man could have been dead? And if they stopped to check, that meant now they were unclean, so they quickly passed by. Others have said, well, in the ancient world, many times someone who was injured on the side of the road was actually a trap. And it could be they saw the man, thought they were walking into a trap, and they quickly ran to the other side. Here's what I want to say. In the story, it doesn't matter their reasons because all that matters is they didn't stop. Remember, you're the injured man. You're not the priest. You're not the Levite. 
You're the person who is dying and needs someone to stop and help you. When you're that person, it doesn't matter what someone's reason is. All that matters is whether or not they've stopped. The priest goes to the other side. The Levite goes to the other side. And then Jesus tells us, and then a Samaritan, oh, if you're Jewish, your heart just sank because Samaritans are not trusted by Jews. Samaritans are the descendants of Jews who intermarried with Gentiles and have, in a sense, from the Jewish perspective, given up the very identity that Jews are fighting for. In fact, Samaria cut right through the middle of Israel, and there are a lot of Jews who were so offended by Samaritans that they would travel around Samaria rather than through Samaria. It's like someone traveling from Canada to Mexico, and they avoid the United States. You're doing whatever you can not to have to interact with these people. That's why it's so profound in the story when it tells us in some gospel that Jesus went through Samaria because nobody goes through Samaria. So when he says a Samaritan, your first thought is, well, the man doesn't have anything. What's that Samaritan going to take? And it says the Samaritan saw the injured man and he felt pity for him, felt compassion for him. In the literal Greek, it says he felt it deep down in his bowels. He felt man. He runs to his side. He picks him up. He cleans his wounds with oil and wine. He puts him on his horse. He takes him to the first inn. He takes care of him throughout the night. And the next day when he leaves, he gives money to the innkeeper because the man can't be moved. And he said, I'm coming back through. This will cover his expenses. And if it takes any more, I will make up the rest when I return. He not only takes care of him, he pays his hospital bills. And Jesus says to the lawyer in this story, among these three people, who was it that acted like the neighbor? And the legal expert can't even answer the question by saying Samaritan, right? Samaritan just kind of sticks on your tongue. He simply says to Jesus, well, it's the one who showed mercy. Jesus is telling the Samaritan or telling the lawyer that this Samaritan was the person who was the strongest in the story because he cared for the one who was the weakest. And in answering the question, the legal expert is looking at it from the vantage point of the victim. Who is my neighbor when I'm at my weakest? And the only one who stops is the Samaritan. That's the one who shows mercy. And the point Jesus is trying to make is this. He's telling the expert, if you would consider the Samaritan to be your neighbor when you're at your weakest, so you should be like the Samaritan when you're the one who's strong. If you would consider the Samaritan a man you would never look at as a neighbor, this is the least likely neighbor in the entire Jewish world. And Jesus says, if in this scenario, he's your neighbor because he cared for you, you need to be the neighbor when he's the one who needs. Because if the Samaritan is the neighbor, then anyone can be the neighbor. If the Samaritan's the neighbor, anyone can be the neighbor. Don't get so hung up on how someone is different from you that you can't see that they have the same needs as you. Don't get so hung up on how someone is different from you that you can't see that they have the same needs as you. My mom is 80 years old. Uh, she is an evangelist, and she still travels as an evangelist. She's an 80-year-old woman that when you meet, you wouldn't assume is 80 based on whatever your assumptions of 80 looks like, right? She likes to move. She likes to, when she preaches, she jumps. If she was the one up here preaching, she would have been up and down this stage multiple times. Uh, in fact, someone recently, when she was 79, sent me a picture of her preaching, and they caught her in mid-jump while she was saying something. And there's actually this great photo of her two feet off the air, you know, off the stage, and it looks like rapture practice, right? But her feet, it's like a Sports Illustrated shot because her feet are perfectly level. They're two feet up, and she's pointing her finger. I mean, it's like it is a great shot. That's my mom. 
When she was in her 70s, she lived in a house that has a steep embankment right by the side of the house that's, that's a hill that's just filled with gravel. At the end of that hill is a six-foot retaining wall that's keeping everything in place. One day, and she lives alone, my dad had passed away. My dad's passed away. I've said to my mom before, you know, come live with us. And she says, one day I might come in and move in with you, but today is not that day. She's fine. She's okay. She lives on her own. She's happy, right? So my mom is out sweeping uh, 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 in front of her house, and she comes by that embankment. She leans down, and her cell phone that she had in her front pocket falls out of her pocket and, and was right at the edge of the embankment. Now, how many you know we now live in a time where losing your cell phone is like losing your car, right? I mean, you're like, yo, I got to grab that cell phone. So she reaches down to grab for it, loses her balance, and goes face first down this gravel hill, picking up speed until she hits the embankment or hits the, hits the retaining wall. She hits the wall, it's six feet tall. She's, she's uh, right underneath the wall, so you can't see her if you're walking on the other side unless you're really tall. At that exact moment, as she hits the wall, she cries out for help. And there is a man who's walking down the street on the other side of that wall. She lives in rural Missouri. This guy actually from Los Angeles, which, you know, funny is where I was from at the time. While he's walking by the wall, he hears her scream. His name is Jeff. Jeff is a professional stuntman in Los Angeles. Jeff is walking by. At the time, he was shirtless. He's covered in tattoos. He had dreadlocks. He actually had a bone through his nose. He heard my mom's cries for help. Can't see what's over the wall, but like a stuntman, he grabs a hold of the wall, leaps over in one bound, the six-foot wall, runs to my mom, and my mom says, when I first saw him, I thought maybe I had died and I hadn't ended up where I thought I was going to go. Jeff runs right towards her, gently picks her up, carries her all the way up the hill, takes her inside her house, gets towels and rags, starts wiping the blood off of her, and stays with her until family can arrive. Now, I find out about this, and I go when I'm visiting my mom to meet with Jeff, who is there, because I want to say thank you. And as I'm trying to tell him thank you, I find out he's a professional stuntman, I'm pastoring in LA. I have people in my church who are part of the entertainment industry, including stunt people. And as I'm trying to connect him, hey man, I'd love for you to come to my church. He stops me right away and says, no, no. He says, I don't want to hear anything about God. Jeff is clearly not someone who belongs to my tribe. He's not someone who belongs to my faith. He's not someone who likely votes in any of the ways I would vote in elections. But in this story, who's the neighbor? It's Jeff. And this story, Jeff is the neighbor. And Jesus would say, if Jeff is the one who's a neighbor to you when you're in your need, you need to be the neighbor to Jeff when he's in his need. So I have three points and then we're done. And the first point is simply this. The whole sermon that I'm preaching on is really about taking sides. And I want to argue that the context of this story is they're trying to figure out whose side Jesus is on. So he tells us a story about what side to take because in the story, everybody takes a side. The priest sees the Samaritan. What does it say he does? He crosses over to the other side. The Levite sees the Samaritan. What does he do? He crosses over to the other side. The Samaritan sees the injured man. What does he do? He runs over to the man's side. In the story, everybody takes a side. And what I want to argue, this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. And the first thing is this. When it comes to taking sides, always side with mercy. When it comes to taking sides, always side with mercy. To side with mercy means in part that we avoid taking any side 
that forces us to move away from the injured. We go to the injured, whether we agree with them or not, and this is important, we go to the injured whether we think they earn their injury or not. We go to the injured whether we agree with them or not. We go to the injured whether we think they earn their injury or not. All that matters to God is we can meet their need. Always side with the injured. Always side with mercy. The way the church responds to living out our witness of being God's people is that we have to learn to be God's people for every people group. We have to learn to be God's people for every tribe. We're not one tribe among many. We're a community that will one day include every tribe. So we have to treat everyone as if they could belong to the people of God. We have to treat everyone as if they're the neighbor in the story. When we're unsure how to respond as a church in the midst of cultural insecurity, in the midst of cultural conflict, in the midst of social unrest, always look for who is hurting and serve them. Don't ever let a difference in tribe fool you into seeing an absence of need. Don't ever let a difference in tribe fool you into seeing an absence of need. Serve the people who are hurting. You're like, well, what if there's hurting on both sides? Then go to both sides. If there's injured on this side and on that side, you run to the right and you run to the left. You always go to where the injured are because that's the side the church takes. We take the side of mercy. Now, I will say this because I think it's always a, a good correction. When we're talking about mercy, that's different than enabling. And I always want to stress this because I know that sometimes people in trying to show mercy might not be giving what someone actually needs. They're just giving what someone wants. Now, as a foster parent, I'm, I'm learning again. I've seen this as a pastor working with addicts and other people that sometimes what someone needs isn't what they want. And sometimes what they want is the last thing they actually need. So when I talk about mercy, I'm talking about what the need is. Always side with mercy by trying to meet the need. And if you're unsure of what side to take, side with mercy. Show love. Never cross away from the hurting in any side. Never cross away from the hurting. Uh, we have gone through a pandemic. Uh, COVID is still around. Uh, it's not uh, shaping social policy in the way it did a couple of years ago. But it's not the first time the church has gone through pandemics. In fact, in the ancient world, uh, there was uh, two major plagues that actually hit the Roman world in the first couple centuries of the church's history. One was the Antonine Plague, one was the Plague of Semprian. At one point, something like, uh, uh, like a one out of five people died in the plague. It was a horrific plague. And here's the way plagues typically worked in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the first people to recognize the sign of a plague were always the doctors, but the doctors could not treat plagues. So what they would do is they would close up and they would go out to the countryside, to their villas, and they would wait out the plague. So if you live in a town where all the doctors have suddenly gone on vacation, watch out because the plague's coming. When people would suddenly have family members who would get sick, what they would immediately do is they would force them outside the house. Even if you love your Aunt May, if Aunt May's starting to cough funny, you got to protect your own children so outside Aunt May goes. People would be outside without food or water, simply sick. What the church would do is they would bring food. They couldn't treat a plague either, but they could bring food and water to people who had been abandoned. And how many know that some people will survive if they're sick, if they just get food and water? And sociologists have shown us that if you were a pagan who lived in a city that had a church, your chances of surviving a plague always rose exponentially. If you're a pagan who lived in a city that did not have a church, your chances of surviving a plague would go down drastically. People recognize this. And one of the main ways the church grew in the first three centuries 
is simply how we responded to the injured. How we responded to those in need is what caused the church to grow. Always side with mercy. Number two, always side with Jesus. Be very aware that the world is always going to give us options. The world is always going to tell us what the sides are. And this is not too profound, but sometimes we miss this. Whatever the options the world gives us will always be worldly options. Whatever options the world gives us will always be worldly options. And the problem for us as Christians is this. You will not be able to use worldly options to determine the will of God because those options were created by people who weren't trying to discern God's will. And too many times as Christians, we get caught up in thinking we have to choose whatever options the world is giving. We don't let the world determine what our options are. We let Jesus determine what our options are. And the truth is, Jesus' throne isn't on the right or on the left. Jesus' throne is over all because that's where Jesus is seated. And as Christians, we have to remember the Lord that we serve is the Lord over all, not the Lord that's only found on one side or the other. Don't let worldly options become our options. Let our options be determined by Jesus. We always side with mercy. We always side with Jesus. And number three, we always side with the church. Revelation 7, 9 gives us this beautiful image of the church. And it says, and I looked up and I saw the throne of God and around the throne were a people that were so numerous I could not count them, a people made up of every tribe, every nation, every people, every tongue. You wanna know who the church is? The church isn't a special interest group. The church is a community that will have representatives from every group, meaning whatever tribe you're interacting with is a tribe that will one day have people around the throne of God. Always treat people as if they could belong to the throne of God, as if they could belong to the people of God. Always side with the church. That means that we're called to serve everyone as if they could be part of the church. That means we're called to serve as a church in which we're intentional about serving others. That means we're called to serve together as representatives of Jesus. We are called as a church to declare the will of God for a world in need of God's mercy. How many of you agree with that? Our mission is to show the will of God to a world that needs the mercy of God. We can't do that unless we show mercy ourselves. And if we're not doing that, we're not the church Jesus has called us to be. Now, can I tell you one more story? Yes? Good, because if you say no, it's gonna be really awkward. I know a pastor who years, years ago, uh, in his early years of his ministry, was asked one day on a Sunday to come visit a neighbor of one of his church members. And the neighbor said, I have a woman in my neighborhood. She doesn't go to our church. She has cancer. She got cancer shortly after the birth of her child. Her daughter is three. She has a son who's five. Her husband just left her because for three years, he's been trying to take care of two small kids, trying to take care of a sick wife, and he just couldn't do it anymore. And he finally walked out. She has no one. Could you go visit her? The pastor said, absolutely, I will. Monday morning, first thing, he went to this woman's house, knocked on the door to visit her. Who opened the door was not the woman because she was feeling so sick she couldn't get off the couch. Who opened the door was her five-year-old son who had been taking care of his three-year-old sister and his mom that morning. And the five-year-old looked up the pastor and he said this. He said, sir, are you the man from God? My neighbor told us when the man from God gets here, everything is going to change. Are you the man from God? The pastor said, I looked at this young kid. 
I didn't have the heart to tell him what my title was. I didn't have the heart to tell him what my church was. Oh, son, I'm from this church or that church. He said, I just looked at him and I said, son, I'm the man from God. We walked into the house. I went over to the couch. I laid my hands on his mother and I prayed quietly to myself first. I said, God, I'm not gonna pray that you heal her for my sake. I'm not even gonna pray that you heal her for her sake. But there is a five-year-old who has been told that when the man of God gets here, things are going to change. And I'm asking that you would heal her for his sake. He said, I prayed for her to be healed. Within a few minutes, she felt well enough to get off the couch. She went into the kitchen to make food for her kids. He said, 18 years later, they were still at my church as members. But for the rest of my ministry, for the rest of my ministry, whatever I did, I always heard that five-year-old voice in the back of my head, Are you the man from God? We live in a world that's asking the question, where are the people of God? We live in a world that's in need. We live in a world that needs mercy. We live in a world that their best solutions are sometimes making them turn on each other. And they need to know that there is a people of God who, when the people of God get here, things are going to change. Are we as a church gonna be the people of God that the world wants to exist.